Hey, Ed, come check out my North Star Christmas tree topper and levitates. Is this a gummy bear? Yeah, we lost baby Jesus. Hey, check out these LED lights. I have them synced up to a 76-hour all-Christmas music playlist. There's my little Christmas DJ. <laughs> Ow. So, are you waiting till Christmas is over so you can go buy a new nativity set when they're on sale? No, oh no. We lost baby Jesus like 11 years ago. Is, is baby Jesus always a gummy bear? Oh, no. Oh, we trade it out every year. Yeah, like uh, last year it was a uh, tiny troll doll. And the year before that we used a uh, dog treat. They were the perfect size, but <laughs> Dalton kept taking them and eating them. You mean your dog kept stealing them? No, my son Dalton, he loves those dog treats. Especially the peanut butter ones. There was one year that we used a, uh, a doll head. That was creepy. We, we made a modeling clay, baby Jesus. The dog took that one too. Um, one year we got desperate and used an ice cube. That was a mess and a mess. Yeah, just seems like everything we try to replace baby Jesus with never lasts. Say that again. Everything we try to replace baby Jesus with never seems to last. And? Say it again, slowly. Why? Just do it, Dulcimo, slowly, do it. I don't understand what's happening. Just do it. This is getting weird. That! Fine! But when I'm done saying this, you're gonna march in here, and you're gonna watch my star levitate. Fine, 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 do it. Fine. Everything we try to replace baby Jesus with never seems to, oh, yep, there it is. Okay, Merry Christmas. Well, Merry Christmas a week early to all of you. I'm uh, like Chris, I'm excited that you're here. And uh, today we are starting the fourth, well, this is the fourth Sunday in our four-week Advent series called Taking Christmas Out of Christ. And, and speaking of the baby Jesus, um, so there was a, a child from a, from a pretty resource-challenged family who wanted a bike for Christmas. So he asked his mom, Mom, can I have a bike for Christmas? And she said, well, I can't afford one. Let's just be honest. If you want a bike for Christmas, you're going to have to ask the baby Jesus. So the boy went to his room. He got a, stick of, uh, a stack of papers and his pen. He writes out a note to baby Jesus. They were more religious than the average American family that just writes to Santa. This was totally a Jesus thing. So he began writing, dear baby Jesus, I've been good all year, and I really want a bike for Christmas. Well, then he looked at the paper and thinking about that he was talking to like the real Jesus, he's like, okay, I wasn't good all year. So he crumples it up, he writes another one, he goes, dear baby Jesus, I've been good all last week, and I would really like a bike for Christmas. He's about to fold it up, and he's like, Ugh. crumples it up, throws it away. He's like, all right, dear baby Jesus, if you give me a bike, I will be good all next year. And then he's then he says, no, no, you're too early, Chris. You'd think so, right? Three, usually three, and then you're done. No. So <laughs> what he does is he goes outside to think about it because he's feeling frustrated. He really wants a bike. He's been raised to trust Jesus. And so he's just kind of kicking the can around the, the front yard, and then he notices something in his neighbor's garden. So he runs over there, grabs the Virgin Mary, stuffs it under his, his coat, and runs back home, hides it, 
and then writes a new note to Jesus that says, Dear Jesus, I've got your mother, and if you want to see her again, I better get a bike. <laughs> so, <laughs> we, uh, yes, it is so bad. Thank you. Little input from the, from the elders section. <laughs> I mean, church elders, not like older than us elders. Hi, Patty. <laughs> All right, I'll just, I'll stop digging. <laughs> Anyway, so we've been on this three-week uh, three adventure called Advent, and the first week, I talked about Mary and Joseph. And then the second week, Pastor Chris talked about the shepherds, and I've just kind of encapsulated that here with this painting by one of my favorites, Hei Ki, a Chinese Christian artist. Um, and then last week, we talked about the Magi and how they had brought these three gifts to Jesus, and I was, I was really appreciated an insight. Chris, I, didn't, I don't know if I've been told this. I appreciated the insight that Chris brought last week that when the Magi had walked for months or even years to get to see the baby Jesus, and they saw the absolute lack of royalty, the, whether it was in the, the, the uh, cave in the manger on Christmas Eve or whether it was back in a house in Bethlehem that they were renting two years on, they were probably majorly disappointed. And to me, as a, as a dad that's tried to buy presents that get my kids excited year after year, I, that really resonated with me. Like, once again, I could see that Jesus and the way he had compassion on me came because he was close to disappointment um, all his life. So then anyway, I realized today, I get, who have we left out? We got Mary and Joseph, the shepherds, and the wise men. Who's missing? Thank you, Linda. Jesus. Tried to prime the pump there with the video, and one person thinks of it. So thank you. Uh, so today I'm finishing with what I think is the hardest topic. Now you think it would be the easiest to talk about Jesus the week before Christmas, but, but Jesus is kind of hard to talk about because in the Christmas story anyway, when we're this early in Jesus' life, there's no details. I mean, we don't know, there's no action verbs. We know that he was wrapped in swaddling clothing, but we don't know, like, if he was happy or if he was sad, if he had colic or if he burped a lot, if there was some looseness in the stool. You see where I'm going here. He just gets born, and then he gets worshipped and glorified. But he's still crying, and he's still hungry, and he's still making the, the straw all wet. So there's really not a lot to say about the baby Jesus about the Jesus Christ of Christmas Eve. But there is a lot to say about the Christ that was promised on Christmas Eve. The Christ that was promised millennia ago that came to fruition on Christmas Eve. We do know a lot about the Christ that Christmas is named for. The rescuer chosen by God, whom he had promised to Israel and whom he had promised to the entire world. So, like I said, we've gone through the, the nativity scene. We're going to end on Jesus today. But unlike on Christmas Eve, when the focus is more like festive today, I want us to be serious about who Jesus was. Jesus isn't just a cuddly little baby that we all ooh and ah over, and then we go back to our lives. Jesus was the entry into humankind of the power, the wisdom, the grace, and the forgiveness, the transformation of God. So it was kind of a big deal. Just like the way that Dave and the band started out kind of rocking in on that third song, which you did very nicely, Dave. I don't know where you are, but um, 
about, and we all just kind of drew it in and, and just named the name of Jesus. That's what I want us to, that's what I want us to do today is before the festivity of the rest of the week, I want us to just kind of draw in and lean into the name and the meaning of this Christ child. And so I'm going to start, I'm going to go through three prophecies. There are so many prophecies or proto-prophecies about Jesus. You know, I could have just thrown a dart at a Bible. and not, Well, maybe I wouldn't do that. That's not a pro- I would have thrown a dart at a dartboard full of prophecies, and I could have picked three. But I picked three intentionally, and I hope you'll see why. The first prophecy that I want to talk about today about who Jesus would become actually comes from his mother. If you remember on the Annunciation, when the angel Gabriel announced to Mary that there would be a birth through her, but it wasn't like the natural kind of uh, fertilization kind. After the Annunciation, so when she heard she was going to be pregnant, unmarried, not having been with her fiancé Joseph, she was scared. She was probably, she was getting ready to be embarrassed and ashamed. So she went to family out in the country, kind of like pregnant girls used to do all throughout history. They went away from the people who knew them and she went somewhere safe where she could get her thoughts together and get ready to be a mom more in private. And so she went to her aunt. She went to her aunt Elizabeth. And at that visit is when the two babies, because Elizabeth was pregnant too with John the Baptist, the two babies kind of connected and the baby in Elizabeth's body, John the Baptist, jumped when he heard the voice of Mary. So there's this kind of powerful experience there. And after that happens, while she's still at Elizabeth's house, she breaks into song. This is the longest single uninterrupted speech by a woman in the whole New Testament. And you know what that's called? It's got a Latin name. Any Catholics here? Magnificat. All right. 400 points to column B. Um, And this is how it reads. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things, and he has scattered the proud and the haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent sent the rich away with empty hands. Now this kind of sounds like, for those of us that, you know, maybe have more than one car at home, or we have a couple of different TVs in various rooms of the house, we kind of are doing pretty well. We're like, uh, we're not impoverished. This is kind of striking that the first thing she sings about her child is like, I can't wait to be a mom. It's not that. It's saying that this little baby is going to grow up to be somebody that makes people uncomfortable. He's going to grow up to be somebody that kind of shakes up the economic order of his society. He's the kind of kid who's going to grow up and make enemies. I talked about that on the first week. And when we hear about the Magnificat, we think that, wow, what a glorious song that this, this new, newly pregnant woman is singing to God. And we look at these beautiful pictures. Oh, that is the Virgin Mary that I've always thought about. Well, when you read what she sings, it's more like this kind of rabble-rouser on a, on a protest march outside of City Hall or Congress. She fully is behaving like the ancient prophets said. 
You're like, whoa, that's different than I used to think Mary was like. But I want to challenge you. She knows that this adorable miracle baby that she's going to have is not just a cutie pie. He's a, he's a transformer. He's, he's meant to grow into an adult who takes risks in order to do the right thing. He risks martyrdom in order to fulfill his mission. He goes through Good Friday in order to bring the good news. So the question I have is, what did Jesus read? He was raised in the town of Nazareth. What did he read when he was on his first visit back to Nazareth when he went to church like he always did? Guys, cool prophets, go to church. Um, He went to the synagogue at Nazareth, and does anybody remember what he read? The attendant handed him a scroll so he couldn't pick the book of the Bible. It was Isaiah. He hands it to Jesus. And what does Jesus pick from that whole long book? He picks this. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So he went there on purpose. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, and that the oppressed will be set free. And that the time of the Lord's favor, the day of the Lord, the day that Jesus is, well, the day that the Messiah is coming has arrived. You're like, oh, where's all the stuff about I've come to like be the shepherd for all the little lambs? That's not what he reads. Jesus must have heard this kind of rabble-rousing song of his mother growing up. This is how he was raised, by his God-appointed mom. Was that things aren't okay in the world. And that God is going to make them better. And it's not always going to be easy for us for whom it's pretty good. Wow. This baby Jesus we're looking at is being raised by what some might consider kind of a rebel mom. And he's going to definitely grow up to be the kind of man that the Romans are going to call a rebel rabbi. So I would say, in in kind of just layman's terms, that the first prophecy that we see Mary sing when she goes to her aunts during her early pregnancy, the cute baby Jesus grows up to bless those with few blessings and challenge those with many. In contrary, I don't know know what you're taxes look like. I don't know anything about you financially. I barely even know what you drive, unless you take me out to lunch or something, then I'll I'll evaluate your car. No, he's saying that God's going to make things different, not just in our lives, not just in our family, not just in our heart, but in the world. So, So that's the first prophecy that I think we need to think about as we're going up to this sing about baby Jesus away in a manger day. The second prophecy I'm going to bring us back to the Magi that Chris got us off to a great start with last year. I'm going to just double back on a a verse and then move us forward. What happens after the Magi saw Jesus? So it's in Matthew chapter 2. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And Chris did a great job of unpacking all those things. I'm just going to go right past it to the next line. When it was time for them to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not 
to return to Herod. Here's my hate key artist again. Love the dude. Um, so then, so then what do we think? After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Matthew has people having lots of dreams here. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So we've got the family, the holy family, going to Egypt. And now, is Egypt the, the kind of destination that most Jews back then would think, hey, that's a good place to go? I mean, what, where, had they been, where had they been before they got to Israel? Egypt. And in Egypt, they were slaves. And so that's, in fact, what happened. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with a child and Mary, his mother. And they stayed there until Herod's death. And this fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Well, that's the second prophecy I want to talk about. I called my son out of Egypt. Where does that come from? I'm not even going to ask because it's pretty, pretty, you know, a couple layers down in your Bible study. It's from Hosea chapter 11. Hosea is a, one of the minor Old Testament prophets, um, but he's a powerful one. Don't have time to get into his story, but this is what he said. This is what he said. He said, when Israel was a child, I loved him and I called my son out of Egypt. So what Matthew was doing, because Matthew is the evangelist that writes to that's writing for the Jewish population so that they know that Jesus isn't just some kind of out of nowhere pretender to the Messiah title. He's one of them and he fulfilled the prophets that their whole faith community, their whole nation had been expecting to come true. So this is what Matthew quotes in Hosea as being one of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. But I love the imagery. I loved him and I called my son out of Egypt. For me, that makes me think of the, the parable that Jesus would tell later in life, the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Where the, where the younger son gets in a kind of a crossways with his dad and his older brother who's always doing things right, and he becomes kind of a rebel, and he goes to live off on a far land and goes through half of his father's inheritance, doing all sorts of things. But still, still we have indication that the father kept waiting for him to come back. And the father, when he saw him from a long way off, ran to embrace him, forgave him for everything, took him back, and, and even gave him fine coats and threw a feast. This is another author, or writer, uh, hello, author, writer, artist that I like, James Yonkinex from Texas. And he, he, he writes this, he draws this beautiful painting, but it's really called a triptych, which is a three-part altar background that you see in medieval ancient churches. And in the triptych, on the one side, at the before side, is this picture of the prodigal son, kind of not at his best. He'd spent all his money, all his parties, all his party friends had left him because he had no more money, and he's got a, he's got a job just to, just to get by. And this is the, this is the image. This is the image that comes to mind when we read the rest of Hosea's prophecy. So right, it started out, when Israel was a child, I loved him and I called my son out of Egypt. But then it gets a little more dark. But the more I called to him, the farther he moved from me, offering sacrifices to the images of Baal and turning incense to idols. I myself taught Israel how to walk, leading him by the hand. But he doesn't know or even care that it was I who took care of him. Man, 
I mean, imagine moms and dads. Imagine how painful it would be. You have these beautiful memories, even pictures of of you holding your child's hand while they learn to walk or or scooting down. You'd say, come on, come here. I have a beautiful picture from the back of my, my father, Jeremy's grandfather, holding Jeremy's hand while Jeremy showed him as a probably 18-month-old, his way around the garden, right? It's just, it's just adorable. But imagine how painful for a parent to think back on all that investing and all that love you had and then realize he doesn't even know who I am or where I am or care. This is the heartbreak of a parent. And that's, that's the rest of the story. That's the rest of the prophecy of Hosea. And, and I, as Christmas approaches, I, I think, wow, there must be a lot of us who have some sort of sadness in our life, right? There must be a lot of us when every, every indication is the world says this ought to be the happiest time. And for, for many of you, and praise God, and I'm glad that it is. But I bet that's only half of us here in the room. For the other half, there's a, there's a sadness. There's a brokenness. There's, there's a there's a slaveryness in Egypt. There is, a, there is a distance from God. Some of you are like, you know what? I, I don't even know. I don't even know if I really want to celebrate Christmas because there's so much wrong in my life and I feel way more like, way more like the son in Egypt than the son who's called home. Maybe it's because you're embarrassed of choices you've made. Maybe you're embarrassed of the way you've hurt your family or your friends or anything else. Or maybe it's just too painful to recognize the hurt that's happened. The crazy thing is, is later on in the New Testament, John writes, and this is not in the Gospel of John, but in the first letter of John, he writes this, and it's kind of harsh, kind of not really crispy, but we got to hear it. When people keep on sinning, John wrote, it shows that they belong to the devil who's been sinning since the beginning. You're like, all right, more devil talk. But, But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. Well, imagine being the person who feels like I do make a practice of sinning. I don't feel good about myself at Christmas. My mom wants me to feel good. My wife wants me to feel good. But I feel like blank. Christmas is hard. And I look at this and I think, if the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil, what if I'm one of the works of the devil? What if, what if everything I do is kind of wrapped in sin? I don't want to go to Christmas services. I want to hide out at home. Christmas can be a painful time, but, but what this tells me about Jesus, about that he came out of Egypt, is that Jesus has compassion when we find ourselves trapped, when we find ourselves broken, when we find ourselves ashamed. I mean, just like Israel flourished in Egypt for centuries before there was a regime change and then the new regime didn't like the, the, the power and the prestige that the Hebrews had given. So the new regime, the new administration, they, they enslaved them. It makes, them. it makes me hope that if maybe there's some slavery to something, addiction or brokenness, resentment or bitterness, maybe it's just bondage to depression and sadness. You think to yourself, I've... I, been in a better place and now I'm in this place, but this reminds us that hope is not gone, that the Father still calls for us. And our loving Father does for us what he did for 
Israel back in the time of Moses. He calls us out of slavery. He promises our life will get better. But what happened when they left slavery? Did they get like a free car and then a whole bunch of goodies? They spent 40 years wandering in a desert. So the call from your old life into the new life has some in-between time that's pretty painful. But Jesus has compassion on us. And we know that God loves us and will not stop calling our name no matter how messed up we think our life is. And finally, prophecy three. Prophecy three comes out as we keep reading in Matthew what happened after the Magi left. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph while Joseph was in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who are trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. See what I did there? I learned how to 90, 180 degrees the, the painting. So now it looks like they're going the other way. I don't know if anybody picked, picked that up, but that made me really happy when I did that. Just saying. Um, Chris is like, oh my gosh. Yeah. But when Joseph learned that the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son Archelaus, now Herod was a bad guy and his, his family were bad guys and they were bad to each other. So the whole system is like a very dysfunctional family plus a lot of hate and murder. Um, he was afraid to go there. Then, after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee, which is on the north end, which is where Nazareth is. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said, he will be called a Nazarene. You know what? There's no prophecy that says he'll be called a Nazarene. It's like, what? I want to just explain that for a couple of seconds here. So, there's Old Hebrew and then there's New Hebrew. The Old Hebrew was just consonants. It, you had to like be in the culture enough to know, oh, I know the vowels for that. I mean, imagine if we had to like fill out a job application with consonants. And you're like, I don't know what that means. Um, in this, the Hebrew word NZR can have the consonants, well, I don't forget what they're called. It's been a long time since I took Hebrew, but we'll call them A, right? N-A-Z-A-R-R. Z-A-R. That was short for Nazarene. Nazar, Nazaret. Nazarene with these A's. And Jesus was going to be called a Nazarene. It also, with the different vowel, Nazare, means branch. And so you're seeing the two things together. Nazarene is not a polite word. It's like if, if you introduce your parents to me, they were here for Christmas and they came from like West Virginia or um, Southern, I don't know. If they came from anywhere, anywhere from Indiana, let's just say, because Frankly, I'm from Chicago, and this is how I think of them all. Um, and you said, oh, these are my parents. Hey, it's nice to have some hillbillies with us. You'd be scandalized. Well, that's what I would say if, that's what people would say if you told them that your parents were from Nazareth. In fact, when I was in seminary, one of my classmates was a woman who'd been a Peace Corps worker there. And she said that, um, I'm sorry, there, not in Nazareth, in, in the Muslim North Africa. And she said that when people saw her, saw that she was, looked Anglo. They assumed she was a Christian, which of course she was. She was in seminary with me. She said they would spit at her, men would, even women, and say, Nazarene. They would call her a Nazarene with disgust on their lips. And that's how they referred to Christians. So, so when you are called a Nazarene, it's a put down but in the Hebrew, it can also mean a branch. 
And so that's where it all comes together, where from pro- the prophecy from 11, Isaiah 11 says this, out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot, yes, a new branch bearing fruit on the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him and the spirit of the wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Does anybody remember where we say that during the church service? We say it when one of us is holding a baby at baptism. Yeah. Well, we say it also to adults when they get baptized. But we're asking the Holy Spirit to descend on him. And that, those words come from 11, uh, Isaiah chapter 11. And then, then Isaiah writes this, He will delight in obeying the Lord, and he will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. Once again, with the social justice stuff. It's like, man, I thought Jesus was just about taking away my sins and getting me and my kids to heaven. That's part of it. But Jesus came to do more than that. He came to more than make us at peace. He came to bring peace to our world. In the third prophecy, in layman's terms, Jesus will give us and our world new life out of our deadness and an honorable identity in our brokenness. You know, I just, I want to end with a Christmas story that always, um, made me feel weird. So our family, my dad was a pastor. He had a distant cousin who was a pastor. Maybe our towns were about 20 miles away, different suburbs in Chicago. Well, farther away when we grew up in in the country. But we would always go to their house on Christmas Day. Maybe we didn't have church services on Christmas Day. I can't remember. But we'd always go there on Christmas Day. And this family, our distant relatives, had four kids. Kind of a grumpy, quiet, older son a super effervescent, like, student council president daughter, and then a very kind of airheady daughter. Oh, I hope they're not watching. Sorry, guys. And then, and then, um, no, there's just three of them. That's right. So, and the fourth child who's totally forgettable. <laughs> um, anyway, but the two girls were just delightful to be with. If you want an intelligent conversation, you talk to the older daughter. If you just wanted to giggle and have fun, you talk to the younger daughter. Um, but the son never came down for dinner. It's Christmas Day. And the dude would come down, put food on his plate, and go up to his room. And we were really little. And this guy was like an upperclassman in high school. And we were just petrified. Like, wow, is he mad at us? Is he like a dragon in his lair upstairs? He never came down for Christmas all the years we were going up until, until one year, We were driving down to their house, and I heard my mom say to my dad, she said, Doris called and said that she thinks Jonathan will be at dinner. And I could just see it made a difference to them. Like they had been praying that this this broken man in their family, this young man, this high schooler, would be able to let go of the, of the shame and the pain and the anger and the resentment and probably the skepticism and the agnosticism. Who knows? Maybe the atheism. And he went to church and he came to dinner. And all us kids, we were a little bit older by then, but we're kind of watching him out of the corner of our eyes. And my mom said boldly, Jonathan, it's nice to have you here. It's nice to see you in the family for dinner. And he kind of looked up and said with a very deep and scary voice, 
he said, I think I finally figured out Christmas. And it's a good thing. <laughs> That's what I want to leave you with. There's a lot of depth and a certain amount of reality, a certain amount of darkness to Christmas. Because it's not just this beautiful baby. It's a man who's going to the world to change the world with God's love. And there's darkness there because he's the light that lights it and changes it. But Christmas, because it is God's intrusion into our world, is a very good thing. A very, very good thing. In a world with lots of bad things. A very bright light in a world with lots of darkness. And a very quiet gift in a world with lots of noise. May your week this week as we get ready for the celebration of Christmas be full of the peace of Christ that passes all understanding and keeps our hearts and minds in Jesus our Lord.